But what we do have on the Democratic side is we have the people power. And I think that especially in the last four years, so many more people are awake and are able to think about themselves as stewards of this democracy, not just beneficiaries of it. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Lala Wu is co-founder of the Sister District Project, a group that connects volunteers from politically uncontested areas of the country to winnable down-ballot races elsewhere. She was a lawyer before the election of Trump pulled her into politics full-time. Lala has taken over the leadership recently from Rita Bosworth, who was a previous guest on this show. So it seemed like a good time to catch up with Sister District after the 2020 election and see what their plans are going into this next political cycle. So with that as background, a quick word from our sponsor, and then my interview with Lala at Sister District. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Lala, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yes, I would love to. So I grew up in Seattle where I went to public school, Garfield High School, actually. And I really learned a strong sense of civic responsibility there. And I took that into my college experience at Barnard College of Columbia in New York City, where I studied urban studies and political science. And I just loved learning all about the ways that local state policies can change people's lives. I don't know that I would have put it exactly that way back then, but you know, where I am now and looking back, I can really see how that uh, was a major part in shaping what I'm doing today. And then I also went to law school at Berkeley, where I studied environmental and land use law. And as I progressed in my career there, I really was reinforcing the importance of state and local policy as a land use attorney, um, you know, helping different kinds of clients get their projects built. So, you know, getting all of the permits that were needed to put a shovel in the ground and build something. So that really was something I was progressing on. I really enjoyed that work. Also had a lot of clean energy clients, which was really cool. And I loved it. And I was progressing normally in my legal career until everything came to a screeching halt in 2016. <laughs> or it didn't exactly come to a halt, perhaps. I kept working at my law job for half a year after that. But that is around that time when, of course, the 2016 election happened and everything changed. 
I have a particular affection for land use and local law because my brother went into that as a attorney and did parks and land use and such for Boulder County and ended up Boulder County Commissioner and now Boulder County Attorney. So I've heard through him about some of the things that go on and how important it is. Absolutely. I actually lived in Boulder myself and worked at a firm doing land use in Denver during that time. And it was really wonderful. And they do such interesting work out in Colorado and uh, in Boulder in particular. It's really wonderful. Yeah, they've created all this open space around the city and really you know, made it very livable in that way. I'm curious about what specifically, you mentioned that in college you got interested in, but were there any particular policies that caught your eye or you thought made a difference as an area? Maybe it was environmental, but what was the first thing to really hook you? Yeah, I think that the power of economic policies is really remarkable, whether that is taxes or incentives to shape behavior. You can see that in terms of, you know, encouraging people to put solar panels on their roofs or to drive a certain kind of car or to send their kids to a certain, you know, school in a certain place. Um, I think that there are just so many different kinds. It's hard to pick just one, but this local and state level policy and the, the structures that are there at this down ballot level, these are the kinds of things that really, really impact people. I would not have been able to quite tell that story when I was in college, but it is kind of remarkable to see um, how that thread has been common when I look back. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, what was it about the 2016 election that <laughs> set you on a different course? I have some sense from talking to uh, Rita, who also worked with you on Sister District, and to many other people who were who changed their lives around this, but what was it for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I remember election night, 2016. I was here in San Francisco with a few of my friends at a bar called Teeth in the Mission District. And we're casually watching, you know, we think we know what's gonna happen. We're sipping on cheap well drinks, eating tater tots. It's cold. We're sitting out on the patio outside in the fall. And it just slowly dawns on all of us that this is not going to go the way we expected. And I think that there was a wave of so many emotions that washed over many, many, many people in this country. You know, all the emotions of fear and disbelief confusion, anger. And so many people, as you said, you know, maybe broke down crying that night, didn't get out of bed for a day or two, grieved for a little bit. But then so many people came out of that experience and said, hey, I want to do something. And for me, it was no different. I made a commitment to myself that civic engagement was no longer an optional part of my life that I could do when I had time. I knew that I needed to weave it into the infrastructure of my life and not just knock on doors every four years as a volunteer, which I had, but I really was looking for an opportunity 
to sink my teeth into. And I ended up finding my co-founders, Rita and Gabby on Facebook, and we pulled in a couple friends and then we started going from there. But for the most part, we were pretty much strangers before this all started. Rita, I've had on the show um, and I met her once at a new founders conference, I think. But tell me a little about what you think of why they made good partners and what they add. And also tell me why Rita's uh, stepping down. It's been an amazing run for Rita and the time that she's had at Sister District building this organization from the ground up. And it's truly been a huge honor for me and the other co-founders to all be part of that. Um, This whole concept of connecting resources from where they are to where they were needed was something that she came up with, you know, sitting in a puddle on her living room floor with her twin toddler boys running around and crying around her. And it's just been so, so incredible to see how all of this has come to light. This is a great time to be moving on to pursue other exciting opportunities. She's really looking forward to taking a little bit of time to plan and think hard about what she wants to do next. And I'm also really, really grateful and so honored and humbled to be taking the helm at this moment. And I'm particularly honored to be the first woman of color uh, to be leading this organization, especially as we're looking to deepen our partnerships with organizations on the ground in the states where we work that are led by people of color and as we reaffirm our commitment to equity and inclusion. Gabby still staying with? Yes, absolutely. So another really exciting move is that Gabby will be moving full-time over to our affiliated C4, Sister District Action Network. And she's super excited and we are all super excited for her to be leaning into her passion for research and supporting legislators and building out some of our new programs there that I'm excited to chat about too. How many entities are there? Just two, just two. I've asked this question of other people, but not in a long time, actually. What are the two types of entities and why do you need them? Yes. So Sister District Project is a 527 pack slash pack, and that is the organization out of which we're able to do our partisan work. So that's the work of supporting the candidates that we endorse. And then on the C4 side, we do our research as well as our civic engagement and education work. So that includes our randomized control trials and other types of academic level research that we do in partnership with, for example, Voter Participation Center. And the major distinction really is, you know, is this work supporting specific candidates Um, specific party? And if so, then it needs to, for the most part, it needs to be happening at the PAC. The idea being taking resources from where they are to where they're needed. Can you explain sort of what you mean by that? What are you guys doing? Yeah. So the original idea behind Sister District was, hey, we've got all of these people in California and New York and Chicago who really want to make a difference, but they don't know what to do. You know, all of these people that got activated after 2016. And we realized that what we could do was help to connect these people, connect all of these newfound activists to 
opportunities to support candidates who really needed the help. And we very, very quickly came to focus on this concept of state legislative races um, as a place where volunteers across the country could get the biggest bang for their buck. Um, you know, these are races that are critically important for so many reasons, including the fact that they are where the real progressive policy that impacts people's lives can be built and passed. And also because it's the leadership pipeline for the entire party. You know, almost half of our past presidents were served as state legislators at some time. So that was the kind of seed of the idea. And then now what we do is we have been in this space for long enough and we've identified that there are a number of critical gaps in the political life cycle. And what we do at Sister District is to help to fill those gaps. Can you just recount the highlights? How much money have you raised? How many volunteers have you deployed? What impact in 17, 18, 20? So we've got 50,000 members nationwide and have raised over $3.6 million for candidates and reached out to over 3.1 million voters through phone calls, door knocks, text messages, and postcards. And all of that has been in service of supporting 70 state legislative races. And we've had some great results, including flipping five chambers blue, as well as getting rid of Republican supermajorities in certain states, in Pennsylvania and Michigan in particular. And really exciting is the two new trifectas that we have. And a trifecta, of course, is where one party has control over the governorship as well as both state chambers. And that includes my home state of Washington, as well as Colorado and Virginia. And so I miscounted. I'm sorry, that's actually three. (laughs) Um, And it's been really incredible to see what uh, the incredible policy outcomes when Democrats are in control. And I will also say that what we're particularly proud of is really not necessarily, not just our absolute numbers, but also our outsized contribution. So where we do endorse we make a huge difference. And so this year in 2020, we raised an average of 9.7% of our candidates' total fundraising and made an average of 35% of our candidates' total phone calls, which really highlights our capacity for identifying these key races that could use our help and then providing a huge chunk of what they need to make it across the finish line. It didn't go as well as we had hoped in 2020 in the state legislatures. At least that's my sense from afar. Am I wrong? That's correct. Yeah. It didn't go as well um, as we had hoped. That is certainly right. And there are a lot of different reasons for that, which will continue to be evaluated and analyzed going forward. Um, But what we really do know is that This state level work is critically important and we can't let up on it because Republicans are not letting up on it, especially since there is a Democratic trifecta at the federal level. Republicans are going to be doubling down on passing their agenda and pushing it forward at the state level. And so we have a lot of reason to hope because we know that we can win these seats And we know that we can pass really good laws once we get there. 
we just have to keep going. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day and 2020 didn't go as we wanted, but there are a lot more races to win and a lot more power to build. It's super hard to go against national tide in local races. 2022, we don't know the tide yet, but the pattern, electoral pattern is that the party of the president tends to lose ground, unfortunately, in our case. I worry that the energy that we had coming out of 2016 might not be there. We don't have Trump to point to. Do you? I am not worried. I think that there is going to be so much energy behind races and progressive causes all the way up and down the ballot. And the reason that I'm optimistic is because I think we've learned a lot in the past four years. I do think that it took the 2016 election for a lot of people to get activated, you know, to kind of step into this field for the first time. But I think that what we have seen, and if we've learned anything over the past four years, it's that this work, we don't just get to do it for a little while and then it's done. It needs to be something that we make a lifelong commitment to. And I actually wonder if because, you know, the election results uh, were so drawn out, it was a very high profile way of reminding people, hey, this work isn't over. There is still a lot that really needs to be done. And I think that, uh, you know, so many people have learned so much during this time. And I think that that education is really going to translate into continued activism. I think I have a pretty good sense of the consequences of the difference when a state is governed by Democrats and by Republicans. But for you, what are the top things that you see that are different? Yeah, I think a huge thing is voting rights. This is, no matter who you are, something that should matter to you, right? This is such a fundamental right of being a citizen in this country. And it is atrocious, the kinds of things that Republicans do in the states where they have power to make it harder for people to vote, to disenfranchise them, to disenfranchise people who have already served their time if they were convicted of committing a crime, um, making it harder to vote by mail or getting rid of drop boxes, putting barriers up for absentee voting. Uh, this is exactly the kind of thing, for example, that we are seeing the Republicans plan in Georgia right now. And I think that's something that we should watch very closely and be very concerned about because as everybody knows, the margins in Georgia, they were on our side, but they were slim. And these kinds of massive voting rights rollbacks are the kinds of things that could affect those margins dramatically. That's just one policy area. I mean, in Arizona, one of the legislators just proposed giving the legislature the right to overturn the results of the presidential election if they want to. I, I don't know that that'll pass, but they learned from this Trump attempt to, to change the election without merit. Exactly. And you're exactly right that this is just one issue area, but the list really goes on. You know, in Texas, Governor Abbott said that 
he thinks the state should become a, quote, Second Amendment sanctuary, you know, so that no government official at any level can come and take your gun away from you, which is really not the right direction that we want to be going here. So I think that's a perfect example of, hey, we've got this democratic trifecta at the federal level. That's super important. And I know that we're going to get a lot done, but that does not mean that we can take our eyes off the prize when it comes to what's happening in the states. In every area where you regulate or affect the economy, like you mentioned earlier, it's it's highly consequential. Yeah. Why is this a good job for you, Lala? Why are you excited about continuing after already putting in several years? Yeah, I am incredibly excited about leading Sister District into its next chapter because of the flip side of what we just talked about in terms of bad policy, because there's so much incredible progressive policy that we have yet to accomplish. One of our biggest accomplishments from um, the past four years has been helping to gain a democratic trifecta in Virginia. That has led to so many positive developments. Of course, in 2017, when we didn't quite make the trifecta, but we did win so many seats and change the composition of that chamber, 400,000 more people had access to Medicaid healthcare. That was an incredible, literally life-changing result for so many. And then just this uh, year, on January 1st, there were a number of pieces of legislation that went into effect in Virginia. For example, undocumented immigrants are not permitted to obtain driver's licenses in most states, but they still have to go to work and school, of course, and often live in fear of being arrested or even deported for just getting in their car. So as of January 1st, Virginia is one of just 16 states to allow undocumented immigrants to obtain driver privilege cards, which is an awesome achievement. There's another law in Virginia that says that they're prohibiting surprise medical billing so that patients are not surprised by a service they didn't know they were receiving from an out-of-network provider. And this is the kind of thing that is super nitty-gritty and down in the weeds, but that it makes a huge, huge impact on people's lives, especially during this pandemic when so many people are out of work or underworked and are not sure where the next paycheck is coming from. So I'm incredibly energized by all of the opportunities ahead of us to win more elections and to build more power and to pass these nitty gritty policies that are going to change people's lives. I'm sure that after a big election, you guys do some planning and thinking about how you might change things going forward. What are you thinking as we approach 2022 already and beyond? Yes, it does already feel like 2022 is hurtling towards us, but we are ready and we have done a lot of debriefing and analysis and figuring out where we can add the most value going forward. And what is clear to us is that our mission has always been to build enduring progressive power in state legislatures because it's where we can have an outsized impact on people's lives. And we are shaping our strategy under four pillars moving forward. And the first is to win elections. And that is the cornerstone field and fundraising work that we have always done 
through our volunteer teams and the incredible, creative, dedicated work that they do to support these candidates all across the country. And it also includes professional and strategic advice to candidates to help them fill in critical gaps. Maybe they need help with their website or their comms or some data. We have folks on staff who are able to fill in those gaps and help them run a strong campaign. And second is we are supporting organizers. And this means not only training our own volunteer leaders, but also launching a new program called State Bridges. And we're super excited about State Bridges because it will be a way for us to direct some of our grassroots fundraising to state-based power building organizations that are doing year-round work on the ground in the states where we are. So that is going to mean that our volunteers will have the opportunity to raise funds to support the new Virginia majorities of the world, for example. That's an incredible organization in Virginia run by Tram Nguyen. And the work that she and her organization have done has really been one of the blueprints for how we can build this power all year round over the course of a decade plus in order for us to be able to flip these seats. There's so much talk about Arizona and Georgia and Stacey Abrams and Latasha Brown this year, and it all fits into the same narrative. We have to be doing this year round power building on the ground. You know, when I was first watching a lot of new groups show up in 2017, there were a few that were focused like you are on state legislatures. And there had already been the the DLCC that was sort of the party committee that was supposed to be doing that. And a new one was flippable as well as you. And, and then there's forward majority and future now. I've come across a number over time. Why do we need a separate entity for what you do? You know, I know flippable merged into swing left. Why should sister district be out as an independent thing, not part of the party or not part of, you know, growing a bigger enterprise? Yeah, we really see ourselves as filling critical gaps at every stage of the political life cycle that no one else is doing. If we saw that all of the work was being done, then we would rethink things. But the way that we see it, there is still so much that is out there that needs to be done. And we believe that it really should be done in partnership with others. So we work closely with the DLCC. And, you know, as you said, Flippable is now part of Swing Left, which we also work closely with them as well as with all of the other groups that you mentioned. And we're really happy to be able to do that and to coordinate to make sure that we are not overlapping and where we have aligned interests, we're able to work together and force multiply. One of the most challenging things about a small enterprise like yours is the fundraising, is finding the dollars to pay your staff, to go out to the campaigns, etc., I assume that you're advantaged by having a volunteer base, but how do you how do you find those dollars and will they be there in the same quantities or more as we go forward? Yeah, that is a great question. And we do think that this is going to be a challenging fundraising year for us. This is 
2021, I think of it as kind of a hangover year of all hangover years in terms of politics. But we're coming into this year with a very strong financial position because we fundraised so aggressively last year. And we're looking forward to, you know, continuing to fundraise as aggressively as possible this year, because although there are very important elections that happen on the even years, there's also really incredible elections that happen on the odd years. Of course, Virginia is happening this year and we will be back there. And as we were just discussing, this work is year round. And that actually brings me to the third pillar of our strategy of our four, which is developing legislators. And this is something that doesn't only happen around campaign season. In fact, it only can happen at the complementary times, right? And so we are working to um, support legislators and to help them bridge that gap between winning an election and being effective lawmakers. We provide them with community and networking with other legislators who are in their position and with skills building and resources as well to help them ramp up their education so they can hit the ground running there. And as part of this, we're actually also starting a new program, another one that I am incredibly excited about called Future Winners. And the idea there is to identify really exceptional candidates who unfortunately lost, but who should really run again. The research shows that a lot of people need to run for office more than once to actually win and get in there. And once they are in, they can be really excellent. But folks often need a little bit of extra support because it's really hard to run for office. You put your entire life on hold. You put yourself out there. It is a tremendous financial and emotional outlay. And we ask a lot of our candidates. And so if we want them to really stay in the pipeline, then we need to act like it and we need to make sure we're providing them support. So that's another new program we're developing this year. And then our fourth pillar is educating and empowering. And that's where we'll continue to do our voter and volunteer engagement research on tactics and messaging. And we'll also continue to educate people about the importance of states. We've got a really great book club, for example. When you look at the other side, what the Republicans are doing, is there an analog to Sister District? What do you face on the battlefield, as it were? Well, my good friends at Run for Something said this the other day, but Republicans are on year 39 of a 40-year strategy, and Democrats are on year four. So we are very target the party. We are behind in building the kind of infrastructure that we need to build power at not only every elected level of government, but also in the judicial system. Also the soft power of the media and academic thinking. We are very, very far behind. The right has a soup to nuts, full stack, full life cycle, whatever analogy you want to use plan for how they bring supporters in at the very beginning, you know, inculcate them with their ideas and keep them as avid supporters, develop them as leaders throughout their entire lives. And so that is what we're facing on the Republican side. The infrastructure is 
very, very strong on that side. But what we do have on the Democratic side is we have the people power. And I think that especially in the last four years, so many more people are awake and are able to think about themselves as stewards of this democracy, not just beneficiaries of it. I take that as a lot of comfort and energy as we look ahead to the future. As for whether there's a Republican counterpart to Sister District, we have not been able to identify one, but I think that that relates a little bit to what I was saying before, which is that we have the people power on the right. What they really have is a very, very well-organized and well-funded top-down machine. So it's a different kind of scenario, but we are doing everything we can to like I said, fill those critical gaps that we see them. Starting this up and pushing it forward for all these years, I'd like to call that political entrepreneurship. What do you think you've learned about building an organization in this progressive ecosystem that you can share? Oh, so many things. I was laughing because Rita wrote me an email on December 1st, 2016. She was telling me about sister district and different ways that I might be able to be involved. This was so early on, obviously. And she said, oh, I'm not talking about anything life altering, (laughs) (laughs) which is so humorous to me now because- You could keep doing your job and just do this on the side. Yes. Is that what she meant? Yes. 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 None of us set out to start a national organization. We all thought that we were just taking on a little volunteer piece that would be interesting and hefty and that would be part of our lives. But never, ever could we have imagined that six months later, we would all have quit our jobs to do this full time. It's not imaginable, you know, especially since most of us were attorneys, actually, and like had perfectly successful, very stable careers. (laughs) You know, my mom still is, I think has a little bit of a question mark sometimes, but that's okay. I understand. (laughs) And I'm, I'm very, very, very grateful to have had the opportunity to build this organization from the ground up. And, you know, anybody who wants to talk to me about political entrepreneurship out there, I'm super happy to chat. Feel free to, you know, get in touch But I will say one thing, which is that working with a team of women has been extraordinary. You know, it was five women who started this organization, Rita Bosworth, Candace Mitchell, Liz Schwegler, Gabby Goldstein, and myself. And Candace decided to stay on in her career as a federal public defender. That is such important, incredible service to everyone. So I'm glad that she did that, but we miss her. And the four of us who did stay on and are still full-time have just had such an amazing, wild ride together in in building this organization. There was a little saying we had at some point early on where we were still learning how to work from home. We made that transition you know, when we all jumped ship because we're fully remote. And so we would often be waking up, opening our eyes. And the first thing we thought was, oh my gosh, I have to send an email about sister district or I have to, you know, do this thing and you hop online. And then five minutes before a meeting, well, let's say it's an hour before a meeting and you realize that you need to get ready to go. We would just 
we had this from bathrobe to business casual <laughs> motto that we would have for a long time because we would just be moving so fast and changing modes all the time. And, you know, it was, it was really exhilarating. What I like to say about it is I would, I don't know that I would do it again, <laughs> but I also would never trade it for the world. I mean, that, that first year, especially in 2017, there's so expansive. You know, I just felt like I was meeting so many new people, learning so many new things and just so humbled by all of the people who are willing to talk to us, to believe in us, to give us a shot and to give us their guidance and insights along the way. I mean, I guess that's my other piece of advice is that you cannot do this alone. And I'm super grateful to have had incredible co-founders and also amazing people around us, whether it's volunteers, donors, partners, just friends who are interested in what you're doing. It has been absolutely critical. Was there a person or an organization or a moment that made the difference between or was a big part of this becoming a real organization. There were a lot of people who had ideas to start something and they didn't take off. They didn't find a niche or they didn't have the right team or they didn't find the support. Was there anything that you can think of that, that really helped make this happen? Yeah. I have to give so much credit to, to one person, organization and one person. Um, and that is New Media Ventures. They are a Bay Area-based investment firm that invests in both nonprofit entities as well as for-profit businesses. And they specialize in social entrepreneurship and looking to add to their investment portfolio organizations that make the world a better place. And so they have this incredible open call process that they do every spring. People submit applications and then they do pitches. And if they're funded, then they show up at the, there's an amazing summit every year. And it's just, I have the greatest respect for that organization and what they try to do. And I think what they have really been so successful at is finding these organizations at the beginning, you know, before a lot of people have already jumped on board. You know, they're not bandwagoners. They are the, the, the bandwagon starters. And I am so grateful to NMV for believing in us and introducing us to their incredible network of other entrepreneurs and for that initial validation and financial support that really helped get us off the ground. And then the other person that I have to shout out is Sarah Williams, who heads up the efforts at Propel, which is also a, an investor in social entrepreneurship enterprises. And they have a really strong democracy effort where they look for organizations building progressive power all over the country. And just so honored to be part of that initial cohort and really appreciate, again, just people believing in us when we had an idea and some traction and we could show that we were really hard workers. But, you know, now we have four years of a track record. Then we just had a few months, right? But people invested us in 2017, even before we had our first year of elections. Those sort of things make a lot of difference having somebody who's helped and watched other organizations take off to be there to go to and maybe to get 
some funding from them as well. When you think about the space that you've now inhabited, do you see other organizations that ought to be created? Do you see gaps that should be filled by someone else? That's such a great question. One that comes to mind is that there are other statewide offices that are very, very important, but a little bit more obscure um, right now. And that is Secretary of State positions, as well as Attorneys General. And those types of positions are incredibly important, especially when we're talking about voting rights. Secretaries of State, we could see that in Georgia, have so much power. They help to determine how you know, elections are administered and what the policies are and whether things are done well and done fairly. And so these are a couple offices down ballot that are really, really important that I would love to see some organizations focus on. There is DAGA and things like that, but there's probably not anything on the independent side. All this experience from this side, does it make you think about running for office yourself? Thank you for asking that. I do not wish to run for office myself at this point. I think that I am so happy and I love being able to support all of these incredible leaders and these voices. We have a real focus on identifying candidates from diverse backgrounds who are underrepresented in the halls of power. And we want to lift up as many of those races as we can. And that is a way that I love being involved. I'm curious what your list looks like now, your volunteers. When you approach them, is there a big drop-off sort of in open rate or the equivalent? Are people sort of sidelining themselves or there's still similar interest as there was in the fall? I've seen an incredible amount of energy from our list and our members and people still want to learn and still want to see what they can do to get involved. I think that Georgia was a huge motivator for people. People were really, really excited to watch what was going to happen there. And then the victories were just so incredible endless thank yous to the black and brown organizers in that state and all over who have helped to make that victory possible. People are really excited. I think they see that there are possibilities. Georgia, really just to stay there for a second, is such an incredible example of how conventional wisdom doesn't have to be the way that things are. You know, it might be that conventional wisdom usually happens, but conventional wisdom doesn't have to happen. And that's, you know, what we're uh, taking with us as we go into the midterms as well. You mentioned that the historical trend is that down ballot races, they lose out, you know, the president's party loses out. So we are going to do everything we can to push against that tide and that conventional wisdom this year. And I hope you're super successful. Actually, I hope we don't have that tide. I really hope that. But is there a question I failed to ask that I should have? I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of really good stuff here. I really appreciate the conversation. And I'm just so excited about what is coming next. I have one thing I would like to say. One thing that I would really love 
to see Democrats, activists, volunteers, everyone think about going forward is this concept of progressive federalism. And growing up, federalism was kind of a bad thing. You know, this idea of states' rights reminded us of the civil rights movement and how all of these states in the South were trying to block little Black boys and girls from going to integrated schools and how the federal government was the one that came in and solved the problems. Brown versus Board of Education, for example. But things are really different now. You know, we have a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court. We should assume that's going to be true for quite some time. And although we have a democratic trifecta at the federal level, as I said, Republicans are going to be doubling down on advancing their agenda in the states. And there's so much that happens at the state level that the federal government can't do anything about. When it comes to access to reproductive health resources, when it comes to gun control, when it comes to voting rights, I hope, would love for the federal government to pass some of these big ticket items. But in the absence of that, it would behoove us to embrace this idea of progressive federalism, this idea that we can get a lot done at the state level. Um, We just have to pay attention to it. We have to win those races. We have to advocate and we can win the future in the states. We have to use whatever power wherever we can, especially given the craziness that inhabits the other party these days. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Anything else you want to say? Nope, that's it. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. That was Lala Wu. She's at sisterdistrict.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.